Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced with a broadcasting vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Much to my surprise, I'm still the legendary Burl Bear. The man over there isn't there. We're a towered Lapidus manager to the star. I talked to him this morning, said everything was cool. Well, that's, I know everything's cool, man. Forward to the interview. Reet and petite, as we used to say back in the 50s before you were born. Frank Gerardo Jr., the walking mitzvah, is here with us today. He's on my blind side. I can't see him, but I can hear him. We're famous now, Frank. We were on TV yesterday. The walking mitzvah. A walking mitzvah means a blessing. A walking blessing. There was a time when I said to myself, Burl, you're getting old and decrepit and lazy. You need to find someone who's brilliant and younger than you to do all the heavy lifting in your next book. And sure enough, it was you. That makes me a walking mitzvah. Yeah, walking mitzvah, no kidding. Yeah, that also makes you insane. <laughs> I love working with Burl. You know, people have often asked, and I don't know how to tell them the correct answer, that is, how is it possible for you and Frank and Ken Urell to write a Betrayal in Blue without ever having met each other, <laughs> well, never being in the same place at the same time? That's true. Even you and I never sat down and wrote together in the no, same room. Uh, no, no. We avoided each other like the plague. That's the smart thing to do. <laughs> you would, uh, my mitzvah would rub off. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Howard Lapidus has just shown up. Hey, we got Chicky with us today, I believe. Yeah, hey, uh, I think they're calling in. Yeah, they and are I calling. hear the phone ringing. I, yeah, I, you guys don't need to learn how to work a phone line, man, because I've been calling for an hour and no one's answering. Well, that's because our engineer, producer, owner, manager, whatever, is uh, the hardest working man in the radio industry. And uh, he spent a lot of time today watering his legend in the uh, backyard. And it's, it's growing larger by the minute. So. I got Chicky here with me. I tied him in. Hey, Chicky. Is he there? How you doing, fellas? Hey, hey there Chicky. he is. You know him, Frank. You've talked to him before. Yes, sir. Hi, Chicky. How are you? Chicky, uh, I'm Burl Bear. I'm the the other third guy, third wheel here, the author, <laughs> author spectrum. Oh, oh, Bear, sorry, sorry about that. Listen, I appreciate you guys letting me come on. Thanks. Oh, no, we want you to come on because we've got some questions that we want to ask you that our audience would probably like to know us. I mean, I, I've watched the documentary. I've even read our own book. And, uh, <laughs> Which is unusual. <laughs> and uh, I said, how did a nice guy... I mean, Ken, I could understand. You know, I mean, uh, you flash a $100 bill in front of him, and he just said he melted. <laughs> Didn't take yeah. long. But he's grown up now, so he was well, a little mature yeah, then. That, that, that is true. That is true. All it would take is 100 Now, Chicky, how was it... You, well, what was your motivation in uh, becoming a cop? Uh, motivation to become a cop ever since I was a kid. You know, hey, listen, what do you want to be when you grow up? want to be a cop. Funny that to be a cop, you study criminal science. <laughs> Not cop science, science, criminal science. That's right. And who would have known that I needed that further on down the line? Yeah. At what point did you find your first temptation to cross the line? Ooh, that's uh, that's 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 pretty rough because temptation comes the easiest way. I mean, in the academy when you're there, they throw it into you. Hey, listen, you know, you're gonna be this, you're gonna be this. 
yet you walk in and the store owner wants to uh, buy you breakfast or something like that, and, and you know you go to pay. He says, no, 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 it's okay. You know, and it, it kind of for me kind of started that way because guess what store I was at uh, every day I worked. <laughs> so it just it starts with the small stuff like a free pack of cigarettes, maybe uh, free steak dinner. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, completely. What you would think as uh, um, uh, um, as a new guy is, you know, okay, it's harmless. It's a cup of coffee. You know, not you know, not taking hundreds of dollars, or the guy's not buying me a car or anything like that. You know, it, it, it turns out to be something that, you know, as far as I was concerned, is harmless. Yeah, it sounds harmless to me too. <laughs> and I mean, well, as disc jockeys, I mean, Matt Allen, our producer, and I were reminiscing that when we were on the air on terrestrial radio. We never paid to rent a video, ever. That was just perks of the gig. Ever. Yeah, it didn't pay for records. Good, you know, it just came with right hours. You see, when I, when, when I was at this jockey, there weren't visitor videos yet. They hadn't so. they had invented VCRs <laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah. No, they had gramophones. <laughs> They did. Didn't they, didn't they also bring lines of coke into the? Uh, oh, well, hell there was, yes. There was that. That came much later. With me, I was. It was so long ago. It was Coca Cola. <laughs> so I could remember that out. as a Coke product. They used to have competitions between the record promoters on who had the best cocaine. Really? Yeah. Every well, Tuesday, guys. Anything, yep. Anything or Wednesday if you're in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> you guys kind of did did well in the radio I, industry. I, so <laughs> I think what I think what Chicky's saying though is interesting because. You know, when you're out there and you get that free cup of coffee or that free pack of cigarettes, you got to take it because your your training officer or the, whoever you're riding with is watching you to see, you know, how far you'll go. Isn't that right, Chicky? Oh, that's that's absolutely right. It's very important that the the, the brotherhood starts uh, immediately because at the end of the day, everybody wants to go home, and a lot of times that depends on the guy sitting next to you. And and the only way, in a lot of cases, you know, if you're going to be able to trust the guy, is if he's, you know, does the things that you're doing, and and it's kind of like that slipper. I would imagine, especially after you know talking to you and talking to Ken about this and uh, you know really studying it, that that's how that's really where the the you draw the line. You know, when you're in the street and uh, you've got a perp there, you got to know that the guy in your car is is got your back. Absolutely, 100%. I was watching the movie The Bad Lieutenant again the other day, and I was happened to be in New York when that film came out for the uh, Edgar Awards, and one of the uh, fellows there was a uh, the NYPD, he was a detective there. He said, we don't call that movie The Bad Lieutenant, we just call it The Lieutenant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I remember the scene in the film where uh, he's hoping to find drugs in the car, and he's <laughs> ripping the car apart on, on the street, you know, looking for something to take. So, Chicky, this is Mark over in the corner. That's Mark at the corner. Mark because the corner. he can see that it's the corner, Mark. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> yes, he can. I was wondering who that Well, was. you know, it's descriptive, how. Uh, I was wondering at what point did you recognize that you can't go back? You crossed the line and you can't get back. <laughs> Day one. Well, you know what? That's, that's a very good question because... Um, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm only talking about the guys uh, um, in, in Kenny's book and in the documentary. As far as I'm concerned, they caught all the bad guys. There's no other bad cops. You know, they caught the four bad cops in that precinct, which, and, you know, I think that's uh, my dad's bad with me. But there comes a time where you can not turn around because it's exactly what we discussed before. You, uh, the guys will lose trust in you. You'll start to be alienated. And it's one of those things where, you know, I wind up resigning 
to try and get out. I mean, I had to leave the force to try and get out. And, you know, just like the movie The Godfather, just when I think I'm out, they drag me back in. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, money and greed uh, does that to you, so... Yeah, I was just thinking about that scene in Godfather 3 the other day where he says, you know, they keep pulling me back in, where he, he, he prays yeah, and says, from this day forward, I will go and sin no more, I swear on the life of my child. <laughs> and then yeah. two minutes later, kill this person, kill that person. <laughs> you know, it didn't yeah. take long to one guy to come in and say, okay, Godfather, who are we going to kill next? And bam, he was right back into yeah. it. Yeah. How, how, how did you guys meet how did, Henry and... It, it, you know, it's a funny story because while we, we worked in the same precinct, but we worked opposite shifts, but we worked the same sector, so we used the same car. So after I would finish working, Chicky would be going out, so I would hand him the keys to my car. So we basically had, like, minutes to interact with each other. But years later, we got to talking. We ended up, we grew up in the same town and went to the same grammar school. Huh. So it's, it's, it's really strange. But originally, meeting at the precinct, it was short, quick interactions until we got involved with, you know, the uh, heavier money with Diaz. Uh, Mark has another question. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. I that's got a question. Yeah. We have here... The back and we have the legendary Burl Bear and Frank C. Girardo, authors of the new of the, their latest book, *The Trail in Blue*. With Ken, don't forget yeah. Ken Urell and Ken Urell. We want to have a, uh, for the listener that isn't clued in. What is this story about? Well, look who took over the show. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's going to tell? It? You want me to tell that? Yeah, you tell it. All right. So this is the story of uh, a precinct in Brooklyn, New York, which is uh, in New York City. In case you don't know. And um, this group of police officers uh, working there in the 1980s when drugs, prostitution, and just about everything that's bad in the world is taking mm. place right there in New York. And what happens is through, you know, a series of temptations and everything, this group of guys comes together and they become kind of the face of the Colombian drug cartel in this precinct, the 7-5. Now, if you want to, you know, you can really learn a lot about this by reading our book, Betrayal in Blue. And then after you do that, you can watch the documentary, The 7-5, which sort of puts it all together. Uh, these are like, these are men's men in a time when, you know, the world uh, uh, kind of was a little different. Well, 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 well I, I, I did do it the opposite way. Is that, am I going to be okay? Yeah. Because yeah. I saw the doc first and then the book. I think you're all right. Okay. Well, that's, I, that's good because... You should definitely read the book, get a lot of information, see the doc, and hopefully within a couple of months, Sony is coming out with a Hollywood feature. They're going to start filming. So that will yeah, be a, a third part. You guys get a piece of that? Or? No, Ken does. Ken does. Ken does. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a piece of it. Is he, he, and, he wisely and, sold the uh, and you're going to so split much. it you're, and you're going to split it with these guys here. <laughs> yeah. I think I, a I, cup of coffee and a newspaper. And maybe he'll invite us to the premiere. That would be nice. Yeah, I'll try to squeeze in an option, an option for the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I was wanted to take there's a there's a photograph uh, in in, a, in your book, my book, his book, our book, of you and uh, Michael Dowd, and uh, what's his name, the big tall guy, Walter. And uh, I would love to show that to a body language expert to have them tell me what's going on in that picture. <laughs> Uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the tall guy, whose name escapes me at the moment. He's got his hands on both of your shoulders. He's standing behind you. And Michael is looking at you as if you are his 
beloved grandson or something. He's got a smile on his face that's enormous, like he just couldn't be more thrilled in his life than to see you. That picture was taken at the premiere of the documentary. So it was... Uh Michael and I had seen each other one time prior to that. After 20 years, it was during the filming. We had met at the 7-5 precinct for a scene in the film that was cut out. But then the next time we saw each other was at the premiere. That's where this picture was taken. Have you seen Mike since then? No, I have not seen him since then. We talked once or twice, and uh, unfortunately, social media has drawn us apart. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I listened, uh, we, we quote from it at the radio show that you were both on at the same time, and <laughs> the uh, FUs went back and forth, and <laughs> I love you, but F you. Yeah, well, I love you too, but F you too. That's how you and I are going to be in a few years. Bro. Yeah, I can see it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me know when that's going to happen so I can be somewhere else. But for this afternoon. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I want to ask Henry something because, uh, you know, Henry's sort of like this guy. He's involved in this, and he got out for a while, got back in. And then Henry Chicky, uh, I imagine that uh, you probably thought this was just going to go away and, you know, not resurface in the way that it did. Has it, has it changed, uh, you know, in the last couple of years? Has it changed your life in any way? The fact that the story's come back around. Well, you know what? To be honest with you, fellas, um, I am uh, married to a really, really wonderful woman. I got four beautiful girls, no boys, and this was a secret tour. I had it kept in the closet in the back in that steamer truck with the bubble lock on it. And you know, when all of this started to come out, you know, now you know, I got to take off the daddy clothes and put on the bad guy had, I guess, and explained to them, okay, listen, this is who daddy used to be. He's not like that anymore. And to be honest with you, it did not go well with the missus. Oh. So, how, so, well so, so tell us about that, because I'm fascinated uh, about telling mistresses well, things. In short and sweet, you know, my wife didn't think I was an angel. I mean, she doesn't think I'm an angel now. You know, there's that thing where you say, hey, listen, have you gone straight? Well, you know, straightish. Straightish. You know, straight. Yeah. You put an ISH on the end of that. Yeah. What, 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 uh, so, what, what were you doing for a living married with the kids? I'm a distribution manager for a major food service uh, replacement company. Okay, yeah, you don't have to tell us who. But, okay, so it's completely yeah. out of the business, so to speak. Yeah, it's not Correct. law enforcement. It's completely opposite of what it does. Uh, in reality, millions of dollars worth of fate go through my hands a day. <laughs> and, you know, it is separate from what I used to do. Did you ever figure out how to uh, rip the place off? How to, yeah, <laughs> thanks, thanks, bro. No, I'm serious. <laughs> Did that ever go through? I know you didn't do it. But, but, it, but your, your mind is your I'm mind sorry, is your I mind. I the question. Oh. I could probably vouch for, for Chicky and myself. We would never go back to the old ways. I mean, we could be driving behind a Brinks truck and bags of money fall off, and we would be calling 911 to turn that money in without grabbing it. While every all the other Wait a minute. Hold on now, a minute. Hold on a minute. I <laughs> <laughs> got a term for you. Are you going to the circumstances? Are we in the middle of the desert somewhere? It's just us and the Yamaha drivers? No, no. We're, we're in a city about with this. a lot of other people who have cell phones and videos. <laughs> I, I think we just defined straight ish. Yeah. yeah. Well, straight ish. Straight ish. Well, it's a parameter. It's yeah. A but you're watching. 
watching this millions of dollars worth of, of uh, stuff go by you every day, you you your mind doesn't doesn't change. You figure out how to rip it off, but you don't do it. You don't do well, it. You know what? It, it's you know, and, and Kenny is right. You know, living a straight battle, and uh, really wouldn't do anything to jeopardize this. I do this right now. I'm a workaholic. I do this for my four daughters. I mean, my my kids are great. They're smart. Usually when I get drunk in a bar, I start bragging about it because, you know, I'll ask somebody, hey, listen, uh, how much money did it cost you to put your kids through college? And I'll say, well, I'm still paying it. It's cost me this. And being drunk off my face, I start laughing at her. I said, I got four girls, and they all got full scholarships. I didn't have to pay a dime. So wow. that's what keeps me, you know, more straight than ish. Well, you're yeah. lucky. So uh, I've got uh, two kids that I had to put through school, and i got to pay the whole freight. So how do we rip off that place? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, when one of Howard's many wives found out he used to be a disc jockey, it was the same sort of thing. <laughs> His reputation was shot. It was shot. Yeah. You used to play the hits. I played How the hits you? for a little. It'd be, it'd be working, bro. No kidding. Yep. <laughs> I, I bet both of you guys, though, have a different, you know, in general view of the cops than the general public, right? You know, like, the general public will read a news story about a guy that gets pulled over and says he got his ass kicked and his stuff stolen. And most people say, yeah, right, he shouldn't have been pulled over in the first place. But you guys know that he's probably telling the truth, right? Who's telling the truth? The, I'm going to go to cop. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that got pulled over his ass beating his shit stolen. He deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is he even to have his stuff stolen? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say he deserve to have his stuff stolen. I have not seen that in quite quite a long time. It's, okay. Well, usually, that... usually it's people complain now about police, uh, abuse of power where they've used too much force. But I'm looking at it from the cop side. The cop is doing what's necessary to affect the arrest. Basically, 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 someone had a gun, a knife, whatever. A basic esoteric question here. You look and uh, you look at a cop. Can you tell a good cop from a bad cop? Just by looks now, no. I, I, I have, I would have no idea. I don't think there are any bad cops. Think the thing after they got rid of you, that was the last one. That, like Chicky said earlier, they got everybody. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah, except you. Why? Why? You, you know that's not true. This is wait. This is the blue wall right here. The blue wall has just been. The blue wall has just been erected. Mm -hmm. This is what's going on here, right? We talk about the blue wall in our book, and the the blue wall is kind of kind of what Chicky was talking about here. That you know, this is the this is what draws the cops together, uh, and when they're involved in some sort of collusion. Um, it, it keeps them together because they're on their side of the blue wall and we're on our side of it. That's what this is really about. So, right, so, right, yeah, but so he's not letting me crack the blue wall. No, you're no. never going to. No way. Well, no. Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> I experienced it's what you the... see from a perspective, though. It, uh, let me tell you a story. It, I was a rookie cop and we work at midnight and we get a call of uh, suspicious people out on a street corner. We pull up, two cars pull up, my car and another car, another police car, and we get out and there's two other cops that have been in a precinct for about three years and myself and another rookie in another car on a midnight shift. And we have about six guys up against the wall and we proceed to pat them down from left to right. The cop next to me who's been there for a number of years has his metal mag flashlight in his hand and cracks a guy 
about third down from the left in the head before we patted him down. Now, the average citizen seeing that would have thought, oh, my God, abuse of police power. The guy had a gun on him. I didn't know that at the time. I'm a, I'm a dumb rookie. You know, we're going down in line. So if there was a video, a partial video, of this guy with his hands on the wall, and now this cop cracks him in the head, did he abuse his power, or did he just save us because this guy could have shot us all? I don't know. Oh, I do. I he he could have right shot you all. He did the right thing. Exactly. But that's uh, but from the citizen's perspective, he, you know, he abused the police power. So well, that's what we have. This that video would have been out there. You know, this this guy abused his power. He hit this guy in the head. Look, cell phone technology would have shot that, and some everybody would have gone nuts. But exactly, they don't see what the cop sees. I, I, exactly. I, I think we all have to, you know. And look. I was a cop on the scene at the time. I didn't even see it. Yeah, you were new. Exactly. This guy wasn't. This at least guy, he didn't uh, shoot him. First thing he looked for was the gun, and saw it. I, 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 he probably would have been justified in shooting him too. He didn't. That's, no, he did not. He did it's the called right police thing. restraint. He did the right thing. And that story, in my opinion, he did the right thing. No, I was in a situation but, where... But, but that doesn't mean... <laughs> that, 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 we, we haven't gone back off the good cop, bad cop thing. You know, is that guy a good cop? Is he a bad cop? That's, you know, he did the right thing. He probably could be a bad cop. Who knows? He, he, in this day and age, he probably would have been considered a bad cop. Well, for doing that, yeah, because yeah. The, because the video would have shown that he just clocked a guy in the head. Well, you can't take anecdotal evidence and make it universal. One thing I did find fascinating about your guys' criminalities and made you such good cops and the good cop part, because you always had your eyes open for an opportunity to pocket something, right? And because your eyes were always open, you saw things that needed to be done. And in the, in the uh, shall we say, you know, law enforcement field. That's why you always had these great write-ups. What a per perceptive, energetic cop this guy is. He's valuable on the street. He knows what he's doing. Because you always got your feelers out. Uh, you know, I, I, ha I have to go back to, to where I was with that... Uh... 16-year-old twins. No, the... Oh. <laughs> yes, that's funny. How'd you know about that? <laughs> so, so... Telling a good cop from a bad cop just by you looking at him and you saying that you can't. And I challenge yeah, it. I challenge some, it. Some cop that I don't know, and he's standing there with, with her, his partner on the street corner. I can't tell if he's good or bad. No. The guy from Internal Affairs who was after uh, you and Michael, he said that you. He you, looked at Mike and saw Mike. All he saw was perm. Yeah. But that's after investigating him and complaints coming in. Ah, about him. Right. He didn't just see Mike one day and he saw perm. Yeah, no, that was that. The information was loaded. Well, what about Adam Diaz? He said, look to Kenny. And Kenny looks like a cop. <laughs> I look like Michael Dowd. He looks like me, a criminal. <laughs> he did say that. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, did he, he did say that. I guess, uh, I don't know. Maybe because when I, we met Adam, Mike took the lead. Mike did all the talking. And I, you know, this was Mike's thing. I, I was there for the ride. I, I mean, I didn't say no, but Mike was the proactive one in, in the whole deal. Right. How about you, Chicky? Can you tell the difference between a good cop and a bad cop? Well, um, and Kenny would be absolutely right. He would never do something in front of a cop that we didn't know was uh, um, with us. Let me just put it that way. Now, if you got two cops show up at a, at, a, at a location, and there's some booty to be had, I mean, by boodle, you know, like uh, drugs or cash or whatever, and you're both eyeing it, and you may be from two different divisions or something, like you had the guy from whatever major case squad, another guy there, and you 
which one gets to it first? I mean, do you flip for it if you both see it at the same time? What do you well, do with that situation? And we, first of all, we're talking back in the 80s. In this day and yeah. age, I don't think it happens because of, you know, police cams and all that type of body cams. But talking back in the 80s, when it happened, if two cops from different different squads showed up that wasn't sure if the other guy was a cop or not, much like Dow did at one of those scenes, he talked the other cop into leaving bags of hefty, hefty bags full of cash at the scene, and then Dowd went back later and picked it up. Didn't he also, like, sneak, or one of you guys sneak some down a stairway when there were, uh, you know, cops? Yeah, that, that was, that was <laughs> me and Dad a homicide scene. Yeah. yeah. We, Dad and I checked the room and uh, came across some heroin and stuffed it in a, in a, like, a brown paper lunch bag, and we kept the, I kept the other cops out of the room, and then the boss was coming to the scene, and it, he didn't have time to, a lot of times, Dowd shoved money or, or drugs down his pants. He didn't have time to do that, so there was a garbage pail at the top of a stairwell. He put the bag of heroin in the top of the garbage pail like it was garbage. And then as we passed the boss on the stairs, Mike reached back over the banister <laughs> and grabbed the bag of heroin, and we walked out the front door. That's class. <laughs> it, that's, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's smooth, I'll tell you that. It was all in one motion. He didn't have to think or nothing. He just, as we passed, his hand went over. Hey, uh, did you say, did, did Michael or you, someone said Chicky in to uh, recover something at one point that had been left by that, that was the other scene I was talking about when he had talked the uh, anti-crime team into leaving the bags of cash. Chicky was off the job at that time, and he called Chicky up to... Uh, well, Chicky could tell the story. Yeah, so you get a call, Chicky. What does he say? I'm sitting in my living room, and um, the phone rings. You know, you go, you got to get up off the sofa and answer the phone hanging off of the side of the wall, for Christ's sake. You know, the cell phone <laughs> And he says to me, he says, I need you to get over to so-and-so right now. I said, Mark, I said, I don't even have a car here right now. I don't care what you, I don't care what you need to do. The bag, it, it's a huge bag. You need to get steal one or whatever. So I call up a friend of mine, and he picks me up, and we head over there. And uh, well, the documentary tells us the rest. We were dressed like uh, detectives, uh, suit ties. Uh, walk in, and you know, in that neighborhood um, at that time, you know, white. People in suits were always DP. They were always cops, always 5 0. So there was no argument with anybody. Knock on the landlord's door, tell him, listen, I need to get into apartment so and so. No problem, officer. Here you go. We get in. Sure enough, exactly where he said it was, there it was. And picked up the bag, uh, got back into the car, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> I don't know why I like that so much. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, there's the I best think, part of the whole story is that Dowd was able to smooth talk anti-crime into leaving bags of cash at the scene when anti-crime actually arrested two people at the scene. At the very least, they should have took the money to voucher it for safekeeping, and they left it there. <laughs> that's that's Dowd amazing. Smooth talk them is, is amazing. Because if if they had been, you know, the, the on the corrupt yeah. side, they would have taken the money. I'm kind of interested. Well, that, that's my whole thing. At, at the very least, they should have took the money to voucher it for safekeeping. How, how so did maybe he, they had in their mind. After Dow left, they were going to go back for the money. Probably, that's probably why. What What were the words he said that got them to just leave it there? I mean, that's some smooth talking. 
I mean, you take the money, you have to voucher it, you have to stamp every bill, you have to initial every bill. Yeah, you know, to do all that? Seven hours to it's get a lot of work. But there was two hefty bags full yeah, of cash. Fellas, it's so much easier to pocket it than to voucher it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and why don't you just leave it here and come back later? And maybe you voucher a couple you hundred. You've got to label each bill, you got to initial it, you got to put your shield number on it. That's bill number one. If you got north of fifty thousand dollars, you might as well try and, and uh, not get any sleep for a week. Because the rest of the night you're stamping and turning. It's the same thing with guns and drugs. Guns you had to scratch your initials into. Drugs you had to label every dime package, every nickel. It was tedious work. It was a lot easier, you know. You it goes by it. faster if you fun. smoke some of the dope while you're doing it. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> is, is it? Is, and it's the same way today, guys. Ask Mark C.G. Boyer. <laughs> Mark C.G. Boyer, did you work on the Rampart scandal, Mark? Yes, I was in the middle of the Rampart scandal. But is, is, do they have to initial and do every single thing the same way? Um, the, um, the officers that were investigating the Rampart scandal were sequestered in a secret place in downtown L.A. Uh, it turned out to be the MTA building. Uh, so no one, none of the other cops knew, and they absolutely hated their job. The, the, that thin blue line was more of a. Wall well, that's not the answer to my question. Today, in today's today's world, world uh, uh, of all the cops that I met, the the thirty or forty that I met over the couple the five years I was there, they were all really nice, dedicated people. Interested in making life happier and better. That's lovely. Do they have to when they? <laughs> I'm getting all welled up here, Mark. When they when they grab bags of cash today, and there will that no. will happen today. No, no. Everything they... everything gets uh, scanned electronically. Thank you. Serial numbers, uh, pictures. This day and age of computers is much easier. Yeah, Guys, but they just put it into a machine and it counts. It scans are, are, it are, the are the police departments deteriorating now? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I think that over the over the years I've been with you and uh, uh, the imaginary Burl Bear. <laughs> imaginary. <laughs> uh, Burl Bear over here. That I am. Um, uh, I'm, I'm more concerned with those that oh, that are more that are overzealous. And are more interested in their success rate than in actual justice. That's great. My question was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to some answers. And, here. and let's have the guys answer this. Today's police departments are they deteriorating? Do we have enough police in Los Angeles, for instance? Uh, I, I don't know whether you know the market well enough to answer, but but uh, I, the answer to that question is no, we don't. New York. I think in, you know in the big cities, police forces by far, by and large, are a lot smaller now than they were in the '80s. Um, I think they're I, I, certainly in LA. These guys could pro probably know better about New York than we do. But um, you know, and a lot of that is like every other profession in the world. Computers have taken over. Uh, you know, the most menial of tasks. Yeah. <laughs> I've taken to watching Kojak lately, and you know that's that's New York City in the '70s. Hold on, where's who's showing Kojak? Yeah, it's on uh, Hulu. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. Oh, goodness. And, you know, who loves you, your baby? You, you get all, yeah, who loves, who loves your baby? baby? But, uh, you know, the, you can, 
there was a computer introduced in an episode uh, about Wall Street, and it was the size of a freaking uh, uh, poker table, uh, you know, and it and it had cards that went in and all stuff, and it took them several well, hours. Yeah, to, there's more computing power, uh, power in our cell phone than they went to the moon with. Yeah, I mean we know that. Yeah, so I know. Well, yeah, obviously I'm I'm saying something yeah. very obvious, but it's it's fascinating to think about how that's affected stuff like law enforcement. I guess you could argue that, well, if you're doing less computing stuff, you got more cops out on the street. But, you know, bureaucracies being what they are, are just going to cut down the number of people that they hire in general. Now, in the Rampart scandal, the uh, was the feds uh, gave guidelines, gave instructions on what you have to do to make this right. And the LAPD has to publish on their website, I believe, quarterly reports on whether or not they've met the federal standards. Consent decree. Of course they have. It's called a consent decree. And they I, haven't. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, how many years has it been? Who knows? But it, I mean, has the new? But you know, the New York Police Department was under all kinds of federal investigation because of Ken and Chicky and Mike and and Walter. And uh, I'll bet that they haven't met all the standards that were laid down in the '90s. What do you guys think, Henry? <laughs> Ken, well, they, they were they're out getting a bag of cash. I was obviously waiting for Ken to answer, but I'll take this one. Um, what do I think? Let, let's ask this question. Ask me that question again, and I'll shoot one right out for you. So this is finished. Go ahead. Okay. The question is this: Do you think that you know, in the wake of what happened in the '90s with you guys, that the New York Police Department has changed in any way significantly? Internally, yes. Externally, no. And by externally, I mean the the, the beta crusher, the, the, the flip cop. There's, there's always a difference between bosses and regular cops. Okay, bosses nowadays need to follow the book to the letter. Otherwise, you see what happens. But at the same point, again, like I said earlier, you know, you need to go home, and your partner needs to go home. So you guys need to come to agreement ahead of the time. Ahead of time. Mm -hmm. If I hit you hit, you know, if, if I'm going this way. You go this way. You, if you don't agree with that, then wait till you get back to the locker room and we can discuss it then. But out on the street, you got to be one. So internally, why I'm saying all of the, the top cops, yeah, they want to do graphs and expel, uh, expel spreadsheets and all that. Patrol cops are, are always going to be control. Uh, patrol cops are always going to know, know more than everybody else. So the consent decrees, the federal government coming in, telling police departments what to do, is, is really great uh, window dressing, but, you know, where the boot meets the beetle. <laughs> the um, boot meets the beetle. Yeah, the beetle crushers. That's All what right, you just call gotcha. them. All right. Uh, it, it's not much has changed. No. no. My, that's my personal opinion. Somebody else may feel different, but that's my personal opinion. Ken? Uh, the, the cop on the beat's always always going to know more. He's always going to have his, his ear to, to what's going on in, in his city, on his beat, you know, more so than, than the, the bosses. The bosses want to make sure everything is done by the book so nothing falls back on them. Uh, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about Brooklyn, too, because, you know, in the 80s, where you guys were was just a beat-down, run-down shithole, and now it's really the place to live in New York, right? It, Brooklyn has come up to million-dollar homes. I mean, I started out before I went to East New York in Bed-Stuy, and it was, you know, much like East New York, it looked like post-World War II. Buildings were knocked down, and empty lots all over the place, and now there's million-dollar homes there. It, it's crazy how much it's changed around. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, here in L.A. I never could quite comprehend this. Venice 
California, Venice Beach, you know, right on the ocean. You would think they'd be the highest property values in the whole area. That was the slum. Now, how you could have a slum in the most gorgeous area always amazed me. Uh, and now it's a mixture. You've got the million-dollar homes, and it's a good place to score. So... <laughs> But but I I mean like if you if you were to go back through there I guess like kind of what maybe in relation to what Burl's saying if you were to go back through there would you recognize any of the old spots are they even uh, there? Easy question for me because when I went back to film for the for the documentary in New York we actually went back to the seven five precinct I didn't even realize we were within the precinct confines when we got there. Wow. The director Tiller had to say. You know where we are, and then I started looking around, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is the seven five. I didn't even recognize it." Hmm. Changes that much? Is that is that due to uh, better law enforcement or just uh, property value? Property values, man. Influx of money. They they did. In fact, it, it started when I, when I was still working there in my last year. They started refurbing all the rundown buildings. They had a. Contractors came in and started doing. I don't know if the city was actually doing it, but they came in and they started rebuilding all the homes, and uh, you know that that brought in homeowners who who take care of their their uh, property, and that brings up all the values. You know, there was no more burnt out buildings, no more uh, empty lots. Everything was being yeah, bought up. Yeah, these charges usually a lot of that eminent domain stuff of taking property away from people. Yeah, there yeah, was, it's, there was it's, uh, eminent domain. So yeah, the city actually was taking some properties because they did that to a couple of bodegas that. Uh, yeah. We had acquired. See, this this is like one of those things, uh, those broken window theories, right? It almost seems like what you're saying is the condition of the neighborhood sort of um, was a greenhouse or, a, you know, a place for these kinds of bad stuff to happen. But now that, uh, you know, it's changed and it looks nicer and it's prettier and the property is worth a lot more, you don't see this kind of stuff. Yeah. Not not yeah, not as evident. It's it's uh, still there. It's, it's just sure moved up, up just scale. Out in the open the way it was when we were there. Yeah. And I knew a guy. I met a fellow who used to be a uh, a drug dealer in Boston, former drug dealer in Boston. And he said one of the greatest things that happened for me financially is a guy picked me up out of the the, the bad so called bad neighborhoods of Boston, took me out to the suburbs in the safe house, sent me dealing out of there. He says well, that was a hell of a great deal. He says. <laughs> Because it really created race unity because the white people were buying from the black dealer and becoming buddies and, you know, <laughs> broke down the barriers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he said it was a great business move. But then when he decided to get out of the business, he, he gave, uh, he says, I, I bequeathed my, all my connections to my dad, had him take over the, uh, the drug business, and I went to school. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. You know, he made sure his dad was well taken care of. Keep the water turned on. Yeah, that's a uh, was it. Uh, uh, we had Michael Gordine on the show. Uh, your number three or four corrupt cop in NYPD. Uh, he was he was objecting to the legalization of drugs. He says that's the only thing we've got left in the ghetto that we could be entrepreneurs with. They want to take that away from us. That's a good question, though. Do you think that if drugs were legalized, like cocaine, that you wouldn't have had like this whole corruption scandal explode there? Kind of. I would imagine, but that's never going to happen. So, I mean, you barely get weed legalized. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think, it, I think that if, if you have individuals that are looking for an angle, 
They'll find that angle wherever it again, is. Again, it's just another product, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If, if it was legalized, something else, would, whatever else is illegal, would become the product itself. Right. So, you know, you know, you know in the thir- 40s and 50s and 30s, it was, you know, numbers and prostitution. And, uh, and there's still prostitution by the numbers. <laughs> uh, I think we should really lobby to make insulin illegal. <laughs> think Why of the, not? all the money we could make off of uh, black market insulin for the diabetics. <laughs> I'm I'm always thinking of you know trying to find an angle here. <laughs> I mean, it's I guess I'm asking obvious questions, but I'm just I'm so fascinated by like you know what these guys did, what they got away with, um, how they're they're just you know each one of all four of these guys uh, have these larger than life personalities. I mean, Ken is super, super smart to, you know, be able to, you know, sit down and write down his whole memoir and have hold on to it for all these years, and Henry able to pull himself away and, you know, get into a completely different life and change himself. Uh, you know, you could go on and on and talk uh, uh, about, uh, you know, how these 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 men, cha- you know, were so large in their neighborhood and now they're large in their lives in other ways. It's just an interesting story. Um, how often, you know, uh, are, does somebody randomly come up to uh, Chicky and say, hey, I saw you on TV the other night? Well, you know what? Out of uh, the, the four of us, or the five of us, actually, that Adam included, he, he, even Kenny's like, I'm probably the one with the least amount of exposure, but I still get it. I mean, I, I was uh, on a business flight one time, and I'm walking up to uh, the TSA agent, the guy looks at me and pulls me off the line, and I'm like, oh, shit, okay, so I, I'm not really smart, I mean, it's just that, you know, I, I got to catch a flight and, and all of this other stuff, and he says, uh, you're tricky, so I look at him because I had a cop a long time ago come up to me and say, hey, tricky, how you doing? I turned around, I didn't recognize him, but I actually knew him. You know, because I haven't seen people, you know, Kenny, I'll tell you, you know, it's very rare that we see anybody from the old days. I haven't seen people in 20, 25 years, people change. But anyways, this CSA guy pulls me off at all. He says, you're Jackie. And I says, yeah, I says, hey, you know, I'm sorry, I know you. And he says, uh, no, sort of documentary, loved it. Watched it like five or six times. <laughs> you're I my new hero. I'm really glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I got to catch a flight. <laughs> what I should have said is, hey, listen, could you get me to the front of the line? Yeah, yeah that would yeah, right. yeah, a little uh, professional courtesy. <laughs> Straight-ish is what they call that. Yeah. I, I liked it when, when uh, Ken got busted. I didn't like when Ken got busted. But when Ken got busted uh, in the beautiful Long Island, and he has the balls to ask for some professional courtesy. <laughs> We're all cops it here. It, it, it didn't work. No. <laughs> they, they didn't seem very sympathetic. Yeah, not at all. No. How about now? What do you what do you find from cops now when you you know you, you talk to guys that are still on the force? How do they treat you? Surprise! I haven't really talked to anyone from the old days except on uh, Twitter and Facebook, and uh, for the most part they're supportive. Uh, a few a few guys are you know wish we could have done what you did, wish we would have been there. Uh, <laughs> You're or, their role models. Yeah, I mean, sure, you wish that now that it's all over, but when it all fell apart, <laughs> you didn't want to be there. No. What are, what are the what are the people that uh, totally disagree with you or uh, are on the other side say? It, it, it's just 
basic vile nasty name calling you know scumbag you know that type of shit oh yeah you'll I mean, see that on uh there's, there's no there's no Facebook. Uh, yeah. rhyme or reason to to the insult it's just you know Total, uh, yeah, there's a review of, uh, of well, it's not actually a review of the book. It's a, not a review of the book. The guy says, I wouldn't buy this damn book. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. Most of the reviews of the book, I say 90% of the reviews of the book are great book, couldn't put it down, things like that. And then you got the few people that they're cops that went back through that time or, or cops now and they're like I would never buy this book you're a scumbag you're a loser your buddy's a scumbag and a loser blah 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 and then they just end it with <laughs> insults and the whole idea of it is to review the book you didn't buy the book so you're not reviewing the book you're just putting up insults on, on, on the post and you know hopefully at some point Amazon goes through those things and say, well, this isn't even a review of the book. At least say you bought the book and then call me an insult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we don't give you a read it. Just buy it. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Would you, would you uh, if you could go back, would you do things differently? Would I? Yeah, Absolutely. You. I, I would I would have never crossed the line that I did. But what would happen if you didn't cross the line? When, when Michael I first... I would, I would well, say the first situation I was in, Mike grabbed uh, $800 from a scene and he gave me 100 yeah. I would have definitely not taken the money, and then if at some point if it escalated, now knowing what happened, I would have to. I don't. I wouldn't say I would go to IED, but knowing how things turn out with with the advanced knowledge of how things turn out, I probably would have went to either the DEA or a district attorney, and or maybe even a, a criminal lawyer, and just tell the criminal lawyer what's going on, just to have some backup to myself. Yeah, you I might start to start. I wouldn't have went to. I wouldn't have went to IED because that would have just ruined my career. It would have been cut my own throat. Start with the start with a lawyer first. Yeah, lawyer up first. My advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah what one about, gone up to another. What about chicken? But, you know, at that at that time, I'm. 26 years old, I, I had, you know, no, no, I'm a dumb kid. I mean, I'd be like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What, how about Chicky? What would you do? Would you would you do the same thing again? Guys, you got to look at it this way, all right? Everybody's different. Me, I love the 80s. I had a great time. Uh, the guys were blessed. I love these guys like my brothers, like their family. But you got to look at it this way. I'm going to ask you a question. You and I walk into a house. The guys run out the back window, and you're looking down on the table, and there's money there north of $50,000, and it's me and you. What are we doing? 25 for you, 25 for me. Okay, which is probably, you know, I'm not going to say all cops, but probably a lot of them think that way. You know, most of them, except for the exceptions, will voucher it. Now, let me ask you something else. We take it back to the station house, we pull into the backyard. We go in and we stamp every dollar bill and we initial it. And by, you know, six hours later, there's still two hours left of the tour. We get back in the car and we look down on the floorboard and we dropped a $10,000 bundle. Oh, what a mistake. It's, it's been sitting there for six, it's been sitting there for six hours on the floor of the car. Cash, folded correctly the way it's supposed to be. And we both know it's $10,000. Are we getting back out of the car and going back and watching it again? Yeah, probably not. I, I don't know. You vouchered the first 40, so why not the other 10? Oh, they're tired. Well, at this point, we're saying, listen, you know what? We turned in the 40. Fuck it. That's right. Right? I understand. I I don't want to say the greed, but, you know, it gets stuck in your face just like that. Yeah, and it's it's not a one-time. It's very hard. It's extremely hard for somebody to say no. See, but when you know know it's 50. uh, Sorry, Ken. When you know it's 50. That's not a one-time situation. That's day in and day out, that same situation you're confronted with. 
So eventually, you, you know, you do fall to that grease. That's a, uh, it's one of those, I mean, it's a weird situation because it seems to me like you know you took 50, right? So you go in, you count 40. I'd be looking at Burl saying, where's that other 10, asshole? <laughs> well, what other 10? You know, right? Yeah. That ever happened with you guys? Early in my career, that that happened at a scene. We went to a, a scene. It was a it was a DOA. It was an elderly woman who passed away, and she had a, a daughter who was a handicapped daughter, mentally mentally retarded. And while we're there dealing with the the DOA, her her, her elderly mother, the daughter is coming in and out of the bedroom, bringing out tons and tons of cash <laughs> and, and, and in small bills I'm talking tens and twenties so I don't know how they came across it because she wasn't able to convey how they came across it but it ended up being $30,000 plus we counted it at the scene with a boss and two other squad cars when it went back to the station house there was a $400 difference well, what happened uh, uh, shrinkage, shrinkage. Did you miscount the first time, or, or did $400 disappear down someone's pants? I mean, that's such a small know. amount. $400, everyone, who's going to... Everyone lost vacation time. Really? Yep. Because the supervisor was there and knew that they that there was 30 grand they on Including him. He was there on, on the scene when it was counted. Wow. Wow. It makes sense to me. Well, but, you know, so you would think that that, like, uh, you lose vacation time, that's the one thing that's going to keep you straight the next time, right? You, well, you were trying to be straight, I, I think. I mean, you come away with $30,000 and only 400 is missing? Uh, Maybe somebody needed lunch. Maybe so. it was an honest miscount. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah 30000 I can see if there was, like, 10000 <laughs> uh, exactly. Miscounting Miscounting by 400 is a lot. It not really is. For big guys that count money, it's a lot. So somebody needed lunch. Someone needed lunch. Well, yeah, same thing. I had lunch a, and a massage. I had a piece of yeah. Those are good too. massages yeah. too for four hundred dollars. The city took more than their, their, their flesh worth because it, everyone lost you know time on, time on the books. So it, it valued up to way more than four hundred dollars. Whoever ended up taking it, if it was taken at all. Don't you think though the the you know the oh, like the bureaucracy of the uh, internal affairs guys and. You know, stuff like that just sort of made you hate them even more. For me, before I got dirty, I I, I wouldn't say hate, but I had a strong dislike for them because before being a corrupt cop, I, what I see is they're picking on petty offenses. Your hat's off, your tie's crooked, your sleeves are rolled up, your shoes aren't shined. That, you didn't shave that day. That's the stuff I'm seeing from ID. Once... I became corrupt and realized how much fucked up shit some of these cops are doing, including myself. I actually had respect for these, for these uh, internal affairs cops. They were actually out there doing the jobs of detectives against corrupt cops, who, and we were getting involved in a lot of dirty shit. So see, see, my, my I impression gained of, respect for them as I became corrupt. See, when you, the way you relate that, though, my impression of that is... Like, oh, well, it's a hell of a lot easier to go after Ken for not shaving or not shining his shoes than it is to go after Burl for taking $400 from the retarded lady and her <laughs> elderly mother. It was an accident. <laughs> but that's how, as an honest cop, that's how I saw them going at going what they, their job was. Right. But that's only because I couldn't, in my mind, I couldn't comprehend what a corrupt cop actually does. 
Yeah. I, I had no idea there were actual corrupt cops. Even after knowing about the movie Serpico and all this stuff, I, I didn't know there was corruption out there until I became involved in it. So do they? So do you think that they do training differently now in the New York Police Department to because of you guys? Oh God, I would hope so because at, at the time when I went through in 1980, it was maybe a couple of hours of internal affairs training and it was you know here comes the rap squad they didn't the, the instructor didn't doesn't even introduce them as okay these are internal affair officers they're gonna come and talk to you about police corruption and this and that no our own instructors are telling us here comes the rat squad these are the guys you gotta watch out oh great rat patrol <laughs> the rat patrol that just sounds wonderful uh- it's, so you're, you're learning right away, you know, to, to not respect these guys. Yeah, cops looking at looking at the cops. Well, the other thing is, is that the city has insurance for things that cops do that they're not supposed to, and it often doesn't even get back to the officer what has transpired. I had this guy tell me, "Oh yeah, this is uh, in San Diego or something." He said, "Yeah, there was this guy at this nice place with you know gated community, and we figured he was up to this and the other. We smashed down the gate. We did this. We did all the stuff that was horrifyingly illegal." And I said, and he objected and got his lawyers on the the city. I said, yeah. I says, I don't know what happened. He says, we're pretty much out of it. The city's insurance, uh, you know, paid him off. You know, I said, I don't, you know, I don't. It, it was out of my hands. So there's not not a real direct connection sometimes between the uh, the the shows of the illegal activities of a policeman and how the city deals with it. Except yeah. maybe in the case of in my hometown where. They railroaded a, a guy on drug charges, and he got an attorney because the the judge on the stand says this gentleman was not was not predisposed to commit this crime, but only did so at the insistence and urging of this uh, undercover person. You know, and they went, oh, so he sued seven million dollars, one million for every uh, violation of his uh, civil rights. City paid it. So hey. guys, we, we wrap up another one, and they and this one went flew by. My goodness! Yeah. I was gonna say I can't believe it's an hour. Already. Yeah. yeah. Well, Thanks, guys. Really? Betrayal Thank in Blue is the name of the book. Betrayal in Blue by Ken Urell and Frank Cigarano Jr. and yes, even I, the legendary Bro Bear. Buy it, read it, believe it. Hey, Bro, what's next? Magic Man Allen on the Demons of Decadence live from the Lightning Lounge on Allen Radio Live. Dot com. Yes, you